0: All right, I'm going to read from First Peter, the fourth chapter. First Peter 4, verse 1, it says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in his body, in the flesh, in the body, arm yourselves like, likewise with the same mind. For he that suffered in his body has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in, in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, wherein they think it's strange that you... You run not with them to the same excess of riot. You don't go with them anymore, speaking evil of you because of that. Who will give account to him that is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent, self-sacrificial, agape love among yourselves. For this self-sacrificial, agape love will cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man has received the gift, even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Notice that it says the manifold grace of God. The word manifold there is the Greek word poikilos. It's P-O-I-K-I-L-O-S, poikilos. And it means the many-faceted, many-sided Features of the grace of God, which would be adequate to whatever we'll face on every single side and in every single circumstance and situation. It's like a diamond. And Christ is that diamond. He's that grace and truth in John 1 and verse 14. And when we function in him with a submitted will, we are going to sparkle like the diamond that Christ is in us and has hid us in himself in Colossians 3 and verse 3. And so each side of that diamond, as it has been cut and polished through the trials and tribulations of this life, and we know we're not to think trials to be some kind of a strange thing in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. We're not to think that way because we know in Philippians chapter 1 And verse 28 and 29, it's not given unto us only to believe, to depend upon him in every single thing, in every single place that we meet, but also to suffer with him because the trial of our faith is much more precious than gold that will sooner or later perish in 1 Peter 1. And verse 7. And that's what Job's confession was in the midst of his trial as he was still growing and learning in this grace and truth that Christ is. He said in Job 23 and verse 10 that uh, when he tries me, and he will, he will try us. He never tempts us, ever. He never tempts us with sin like the devil does. In James 1.12, blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he has tried, he will receive the crown of life, meaning he will function in the mind of Christ, and he will live above all those details and those circumstances and those situations, and they will become as nothing to him when Christ has become his all and all in Colossians 3 and verse 11. So then we see again here in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. In 1 Peter, chapter 5, this is what it says. 1 Peter 5 says this. In verse 5, it says, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to those that are older. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace, gives much more, gives greater degrees of grace to those that he has humbled. So therefore, allow yourselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, his time. And then you'll have that supernatural ability that grace gives to cast all your anxious care, all your anxiety, anything that would cause you to be anxious. And when you think about it, presently, presently, in that particular time where you are presently, you will think of everything that could cause you to be anxious. And once and for all, you'll cast all of that anxiety upon him. And when you do, you'll realize the reality that he does care for you. And then in that sense, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, you will be sober-minded. You will be sober. You will be able to think properly. Again, 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear. No, he hasn't. But of power, that power that Christ is, that keeps us, keeps us in the mind of Christ himself. He keeps us in 1 Peter 1 and verse 5, because the power of God and the wisdom of God is expressed only and through his Son in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24, who is the very one in human form who identifies with us, who he, he himself is filled up with all that grace and truth is in John 1 in verse 14. So when we're sober thinking and thinking in the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love because love that's completed every single thing about us with Christ being in us casts out fear because fear has a way of the enemy in our emotions through bad thoughts to torture us with thoughts that aren't about us and about about our Father and his Father. And so when we're sober-minded and thinking clearly, we will be vigilant. We will be vigilant, aware, strong in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13, we will be functioning in our proper image as men that don't turn coward. In Luke 18, verse 1, Men, men should always pray and always depend upon Christ within them, positioned, and then above them and everything, and with them and everything. Men should always pray and never turn coward or give up or lose their grip on reality. But they'll be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary is the devil. The devil. Mm -hmm. Diabolus. The word devil is very interesting, Diabolus is made up, it's spelled D-I-A-B-O-L-O-S, Diabolus, and dia means through. And what what the enemy seeks to do when we don't function in grace through a submitted will where we've been humbled, he likes to pierce us through with all these accusations, all these fears, all these false reasonings. He wants to pierce us right through. But what keeps that out? What keeps it out in 1 John 4 and verse 18? Love, love that's completed everything about us. And we know, we can know that we're loved, but the only time that we know that we are loved and function in that love is through the only sense that makes sense, it's the sense of grace and has nothing to do with our own thinking whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it's not my emotions or my thoughts it's God's thoughts and how he thinks about me, never me thinking about myself. The unfortunate thing we heard recently was, was an individual, an individual again said to one individual that he, he went to him and said, you should, because of the lifestyle, because of failure at times, and we all do that, but because of failure in his life, he was quoting... 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 and telling this believer who happened to be in a state of weakness and and trial that he was to examine himself to see whether he was in the faith. And he used that. He used that to do what? What did he use that for? To tell him that because of the way that he was living as a believer in Christ and not up to par He used that to tell him, again, that to question his salvation. There's no time ever, ever in the word of God where we can ever come up to God's thoughts in Christ. Never. Christ has made us who he's made us to be. The Father's made us to be who he's made us to be in the Son of his love in Colossians 1 and in verse 13. That's an established fact. God would never tell a believer to examine himself outside the grace and truth that's in Christ, ever, to do that. And then to prove your own selves and know you not your own selves, how that Christ be in you, except you be a reprobate or one who's disqualified for the race. This particular individual went to this other individual in a particular state that we know very well and went to him and and said that. Happened to be that his wife said the same thing to the wife of that individual that this other man went to. And God would never tell us to examine the self-life to find out where we are in our walk with Christ. We don't know anything outside the sense of grace, ever. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, it's very crystal clear. I used to be taught the same thing. You need to examine yourself to make sure you're born again, to make sure you're, you're saved. Okay? It never says that. Because in the preponderance and study of the Scriptures, all this is when we understand when we have the sense of God's grace through Christ, it has nothing to do with our thoughts whatsoever, or our emotions. We were talking just earlier this morning. Uh, we never go by our emotions, no matter how good they are, no matter how, of course, no matter how bad they are, they're no indicator of who we are. It is God's thought about us, his full thought is Christ. And so this was written, When you understand that the second epistle of Corinthians, because remember, in the first epistle of Corinthians, because of the way that they were functioning, they were not functioning, and they were all born again. They were very gifted local assembly. To be a local assembly, to be classified as a local assembly, and you can see that even in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, you and I will see very, very clearly that they were born again. They were a local assembly. But they were living in the flesh. They lost the sense of grace, and by doing so, in Revelations 2 and verse 4, you leave first love. You leave the fact that God always first loves you. It all has to do with his thought. Paul could not go to Corinth, because they were living in such sin. They were li- in such sin, and you can see that by the time you get to the fifth chapter of First Corinthians, and they were living in such sin with gifts. They had gifts, but they were living in sin because they lost the sense of grace. They lost the sense of, of Christ being their true authority. So he could not go there after preaching to them and winning many of them to Christ. By the time you get to the second epistle of Corinthians, you realize that that was written, of course, and we know this, by God the Holy Spirit through Paul. And it was written with very sarcastic tones, very sarcastic tones, going against the flesh, because God has nothing to do with us in the flesh other than separating us from it in Hebrews 4.12, shaking those things in us that can be shaken and those are the thoughts and emotions of the flesh the reasonings trying to reason things through and it's so easy to leave the presence of god and when we do self isn't functioning right away it's not that we're going to be deceived because when we're not humble not that it's not that we're going to be deceived we're already in a place of deception and when we function in deception with our own reasoning, which comes from the the prince and power of the air, we see that crystal clear in Ephesians two two. He's the prince and power of the air, and he wants to what? What does he do in Ephesians four verse fourteen? Lead us to and fro with every wind of doctrine. All these false reasonings that that the Second Corinthians ten verses four and five go into. We see that very very clearly in the scriptures. And so the whole second epistle of Corinthians was written to a, a local assembly, a group of people in a local assembly who were refusing and denying the apostleship of, of Paul. <laughs> After he taught them and won them. They, they then in the flesh were becoming his counselor. <laughs> Did your own flesh ever counsel you? Did you ever get caught up in your own reasonings? And then what? What? how did you feel emotionally? And does that dictate who you are? And of course, we know it doesn't. It doesn't. So easy to forget God, leave the sense of grace, and then leave the fact that God loves us and nothing can be against us in Romans 8 in verse 31. And even though we're led as sheep to the slaughter in 836, we are still in 837 more than conquerors because the only thing that gets slaughtered in us and has already been dealt with positionally and needs to be slaughtered in our experience is the flesh life, the self-life, where everything becomes about us. Instantly, I lose the sense of grace I lose the sense of his love. Now, everything has to be about me, my plan, my schedules, what I'm going to do. And so, again, this was written. And when 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 was written, they were rejecting him. And when all 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 is saying, Oh, really? You don't accept me any longer? I'm no longer an apostle? Well, examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Where did that come from? Who did God use to bring you to that place? Oh, it was me? That's proof of my apostleship. That's all that this verse is teaching. To teach it otherwise is just pride, deception, and denial of complete ignorance functioning in pride. And that's what happens. That's all we do when we lose the sense of grace we lose our proper image. We lose it. We lose it. And then we get led by things like weather, bank accounts, jobs, houses. We lose the sense. And, and all those things become an issue. And those are the things that we struggle with. <laughs> and then the enemy uses those, right? When he gets us to that place, he, he tries to condemn us and can he condemn me in my position in Christ? No, the wicked one doesn't touch, he can't touch my position in 1 John 5, 18. The wicked one touches us not. But the whole world lies in his lap where he can accuse and condemn and bring his lies all because they aren't Christ. But he can get us in that place experientially. Experientially. And so... That's what, he, that's what was being taught by the Holy Spirit to those believers. Examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? The faith is all those truths about the person of Christ, who he is, and everything that he's accomplished that was through the vessel that Paul is and was towards them. And then they were rejecting him. They were refusing him through their pride and arrogance. Very, very, very simply put. And so when we get back to the sense of grace, what do we get back to? What do we get back to? Second Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, meaning he knows who he is in Christ. When I lose the sense of grace, do I know who I am in Christ. God always knows who I am in Christ. Do I, based upon proper thinking and proper, and, and, and if my thinking is right, my emotions will be right. But do I know who I am in a proper image? Do I lose the sense of my eternal destiny in my image because of what goes on in time through my own thoughts, through my own And then if I function in my own thoughts, then I have to come up with a plan. When all his plans are already established in Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, all I have to do in Jeremiah 33 verse 3 is call unto him. And that speaks of dependence. I need to call on him for everything. Call unto me and I will answer you, he says. Draw nigh to God in James 4 and he'll draw nigh to you. Then you can cleanse your hands, you sinners, then you can purify your minds. Mixing our human thoughts and reasonings under the prince and power of the air and trying to mix it with Christianity or with who I am in Christ. Does that ever work? It never does. So he knew, he said, I knew this man in Christ, meaning he knows who he is in Christ. He knew who he was. But God also had to tell him in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, "Unless that I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, meaning all this teaching that we get, God has to still keep us humble because we will take that teaching and run so far from him and we'll use it in the flesh. We'll think we're something. We'll think we've arrived. We think just because God uses us we think, so, that's the flesh. That's the flesh. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of all these revelations, the teachings about who Christ is and what he himself has accomplished, apart from anybody, and that's grace. That's what grace is. It completely has to do with Christ and God and the Holy Spirit. But lest that he should there was given to me a thorn in the flesh and boy we don't like those thorns do we but those thorns protect us from the flesh so he gave me a thorn the messenger of satan to buffet me lest i should be exalted above measure above my measure making more of myself far more than i do you know what we do in the flesh there's two things we always do in the flesh two things I know when I function in the flesh, I can tell you. I think too highly of myself, thinking I'm above everybody, above the body of Christ, above the Word, above coming to hear the Word, above functioning in a local assembly, above Christ himself, thinking too highly of myself. We know where that comes from. That's 2 Corinthians 10 in verse 5. Cast down all these reasonings, these lying, false, murderous reasonings, Cast down those imaginations, those reasonings that get set up in our mind like an idol and we start worshiping these thoughts. Cast down these imaginations and every high thing. High thing there is the Greek word hoopsema. The height of the atmosphere, Satan. Remember him? Remember his five eye wills? In Isaiah 14, 9 to 17, well, God had his answer for his five worlds for Satan in Ezekiel 28, verse 15 down through. Hoopsima, thinking too highly of myself. Or what? Too lowly of myself. I'm supercharged, I'm Superman, or all of a sudden I'm just a little mouse. I'm so low. That's the flesh. That's losing the sense of grace. And when I lose the sense of grace, where's the only place who God is and his love for me? Where does that flow through? It's the only place that can flow through. Why? Because who deserves to be loved by God? It flows through grace. That's where it flows through. And so that's what Paul is teaching. The Holy Spirit said, write it down so that not only you can learn this, but every single member that is a member of my church throughout the whole dispensation of grace, the church age, which is John, the first chapter and the 12th verse, brought out in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter and those 28 verses to bring out the oneness of the body of Christ, which was the answer to Christ's high priestly prayer that they may be one in John 17, 11, 21, and 22, one with the full thought that Christ is in each vessel one with him and boy it's so easy to forget and to get separated through uh, from him and it starts in the thought life it's not the pains in our physical bodies it's got nothing there. it's the thought life that's where it starts and when i don't have god's full thought for the present moment then it's the it's instantly it's the flesh starting to function in that thought life and then we have these bad emotions and then the emotions say to you this is who you are and this because it's based upon how you feel well bottom line for that is again that the messenger of satan was sent to buffet me lest i should be exalted above my measure because who does god in first peter 5 6 that we we uh, read i don't know if we read it but 1 Peter 5, 6, in James chapter 4 and verse 6, who does God give his grace to? Those that he's humbled. He must humble us so that that we function in a place of undeserved, unmerited favor of God where his love flows right through to us and it takes away everything. it, It just wipes out depression. It just wipes out all that the enemy's trying to do. And so he said, in this place of God, continuing, continuing to humble him, and many believe that Paul had he battled with epilepsy. He also um, battled with ophthalmia, which is he had a terrible eye problems, and you can read that in Galatians when he wrote, he didn't have an amanuensis to write it for him, like Tychicus and certain others that he had uh, dictate and write these things, but he didn't have him at that time, because, and he even said it, he even said it in, in the scriptures, and, and I'll, I'll just read it right here. You can see how what a large redder, letter he said I wrote with my own hand. They were really big letters because he could hardly see. But boy, he could speak the truth when he was, when he was linked up to Christ. And then, even with the Galatians, there was this particular point when, when he said to them, and we can see this, very interesting, in Galatians, the fourth chapter, and the 15th verse, he said, Where is then the blessedness that you spoke of me at one time? You held me in high esteem. You loved me. You loved me. Not because it was just me, but because of the way that Christ was in my vessel flowing through to you. And you spoke of that blessedness. And I even bear you record. That if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Verse 16. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? What's the greatest enemy that we have? It's called, it's a four letter word, it's called self. Self life, it's the flesh life. We're all, that's where we doubt. That's where we doubt. And he that doubts is damned if he eat, because he eats not of faith. And what does faith do? Absolute dependence upon Christ. What does it release? It releases grace. That's what it does. And out of that, in that grace, flows this incredible love. And so without faith, and we know in Hebrews eleven six, it's impossible to please him because he that comes to God must believe that he is. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently, quickly seek him and don't take time Remember in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, come unto me, come unto me. Don't hesitate, come to me. When there's doubt, when there's fear, when, things, when you begin to start going by sight or the dictates of the flesh with reasonings that aren't of God, thoughts that aren't of God, but come from hoopsama from the high, the high lying murderous one, what do we do? We instantly submit to him. And that's why in his love, God humbles us. And so he said, then, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? The truth becomes an enemy to the flesh because you can't mix them. You cannot mix them. Neither can I. We cannot mix them. None of us can. And we're not to do that. And that's what the shaking and separating process in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and we know how that starts. It starts with God lovingly chastising us to shake us loose from thoughts that aren't his, because those are the things that cause us to be moved and cause us all kinds of problems. Not only me, but anyone else that I get around, they cause us trouble. And usually, those are the things that we know to do good, and we don't do them. In James four and verse seventeen, and that's the, that's where it is sin. But certainly. God in Isaiah 30 verse 18 is waiting to be gracious and we can completely confess the sin. We confess the sin and then what? We experience he is faithful, right? And just, and justice means that his love is free to love us now because his justice has been satisfied through Christ. And this extreme evidence because we are in Christ. <laughs> That's the evidence That he does love us and he's ever ready to give us the grace that we need but we must submit to him and what does it take for him to cause us to be submitted to him in the lean years or in the abundance years is he the same is he the same is he does his thought change about who he is does my thought change about who he is in me and so we see it again that the enemy when, the, when someone is living, when a believer is living in the flesh and truth is taught, then the one that teaches that truth to, and, and the one that's living in the flesh, the one that teaches it becomes his enemy. I don't like it. I don't like that. I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it at all. And I love... What that other man said, when that other man, who completely outside the sense of grace, in the energy of the flesh, energized by the enemy, would tell a believer that he thinks he knows enough to tell a believer whether he's born again or not. That guy literally, after knowing it for a multitude of years, told him, you need to leave my property ASAP. (laughs) That's not God's thought. Now we should not, God never gives us grace to to live in sin, we need to get that one straight. Romans 6, 1 and 15, that's just mixing self thoughts with God's thoughts and thinking that somehow God is indifferent to sin. He can pass by it. Now the littlest, tiniest sin is just as much as a million sins to him. One little sin, because he's pure, and he's holy, and you can't mix anything with it. You can't. And we're not to mix fleshly thoughts with God's, th- with God's thought about who we are in Christ. So as we begin to close this this morning here, we see again <clears throat> in Second Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and this is very interesting for the Apostle Paul Remember, he, is, still as is an apostle, was growing and going forward in his, in his growth about who Christ was in him, still preaching and teaching him. But then there came the time when God wanted to continue a deep work in him, and he allowed him to be chained to a Roman guard. And in his second imprisonment, because he had two, in his second imprisonment, he was prison, he was held captive as a prisoner. And he said that. He made it clear in Ephesians 3.1 and Ephesians 4.1. In those particular places, they're called the prison epistles, where we got the greatest truth about who Christ is in positional truth and experiential growth truths. When that man was in prison, boy, he has to humble us to bring out the incredible glory of who he is because it's, at times he gives us things and we get so over-occupied with those beautiful things, we get away from him. And Paul, he had to be chained to a Roman guard. That's why in Philippians 3, and we're going to see that, we're going to see in Philippians 3 and verse 8, he had to continually learn this lesson like we all do, that everything outside of Christ is dung. Everything outside of thinking in the sense of grace and truth and outside the love of God is dung. That's all it amounts to. Whatever occupies my mind, when it's not Christ, it's dung, and we're gonna see it. He said, I count all things but lost. They're dung and but loss." Why, in Philippians 3 and verse nine, that I might know him, because when I know him, I know who he is in me and who I am in him, and he doesn't change. In Malachi 3, 6 and in James 1 and verse 17, he never changes his mind about us. Do I ever change my mind about him? And we do with fleshly thoughts, but he doesn't. Change his mind about finishing us in the son of his love, Jesus, in, in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what we see as we begin to close this out here, he said, for, for this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. The original says it was countless, by the way. Countless, countless, countless epilepsy. Not being able to see. All these physical things. All these physical things that we continually ask God, please take them away. And he says in his love for us, I I can't take them away because if I did, you would even take the truths, the revelations about who Christ is in you and who, who you are in him. And you would take them, the flesh would take them in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat, the beast of the field—he, he, little by little, in Deuteronomy seven, in verse twenty-two, little by little, experientially, he drives out the enemies that are that have been dealt with positionally. Why? Because if he did it all at once, the beast of the field, which is pride, would soon devour us in a heartbeat. And so, did you ever ask God, "Please take this thing away. Please take this thing away. Please deal." Please heal me. You ever? The answer to that is this For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And what was the answer? He said unto him, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect, complete, completed out in your weakness, your inability for you to do anything apart from submitting to Christ. And so, what we see when he said in Philippians 3 and verse 8, And let's read that as we close. And this is what he said in Philippians 3 and verse 8. And I'll show you what he was referring to when he wrote that. And when, obviously, the Holy Spirit had him to write that down. Remember what he said in Philippians 3 and verse 8. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but what? Dung that I may win Christ experientially. You see, everything about his life prior to his salvation was dung. And anything about anything outside of Christ about us in the flesh is what? Dung. Dung. Nothing but dung. He said that I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. Did you ever hear some of the braggamonies? Not really testimonies. Oh, I left all this. Oh, I left all that. I could have been this. I could have been that. And I turned my back on it. Listen, you turned your back and I turned my back on anything other than Christ was what? Dung. Dung. That's what Paul was saying. Those things that we think are something that we make an issue of when it's not Christ, what does it amount to? Even the blessings that he gives us, when we use them in the flesh, sooner or later, what do they become? They become dung. That I may win Christ, look at in verse 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. That's the flesh. Flesh in Romans 8, 9, that us, but that we're not of. Having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. Instantly, when I lose the sense of grace, and is a believer, with all the revelations we have in truth, all those positional truths, the moment I'm in the flesh, instantly I go right back to the law. And it condemns me, and I'm going to try, I'm going to do better again, I'm sorry, God, and all that. And it's not even God's thought. We'll wrap it up here and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law with the flesh under it. Is there any condemnation in Christ in Romans 8, 1? No. For the law of the spirit of life is made me free from the what? The law of sin and death. That's the law. That's all legalism with the flesh under it, losing the sense of grace and God's love. That's what you do. You put yourself right back. That's what I would do. Put myself right back under it. Why? Because my self-life becomes my object. And can it be an object? We only, there's only one object that we have and that's Christ. And as soon as I get in the flesh, I think I'm the object, I'm truly not. I'm very subjective. And then subjected, being very subjective in battling with things, I can't get out of this thought. So the enemy comes up and said, here's all these lust patterns, see? You can escape it for a while. Right, you know what kind of gods those are? We're gonna find out, they're called dungy gods. That's right. Dung gods. Dungy gods. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in all, because all it did was bring up the weakness of the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of flesh. And for sin became that sin sacrifice for us. What do we make of that, the value of the sacrifice of Christ in us? Well, he said this, right? which is of the law, Philippians 3, 9, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, notice it's of God, by faith, that I may know him. Not a man in the flesh, not a man that's failing all the time, no, not a man in the flesh, but that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable, conforming us, Romans 8, verse 28 and 29, conforming us to the image of his Son. We see it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 18. We go from glory to glory. We go from uh, an, an exact, precise, beautiful image about who Christ has made us to be in himself. And he said, he said, Paul said, I count them but dung. Now, where do you suppose he got that from? I'm not going to tell you. I am. Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter. Deuteronomy 29. Verse 16 says this. For you know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt. The land of Egypt speaks of the world system. That's the only thing that the flesh in us can function in. Back to the world system. Back to all those problems and all those things. Huh? Dwelt in the land of Egypt and how we came through the nations which you pass by. And then look what it says. And you have seen their abominations. And it says here, their idols. You know what the Hebrew says? Literally? Their dungy gods. Their dungy gods. Whatever I I make more than Christ is a dungy god. Thoughts. Emotions. And their idols. Their dungy gods. Wood. What is wood apart from Christ? I don't care how pretty, how beautiful it is. I don't care the structure of the house. (laughs) When Christ doesn't have every place in us, even in that home, that wood becomes what? A dungy god. And then it says stone, whatever you can make with stone, all these little beautiful idols, right? We wouldn't think of sitting down in idols and, and slaughtering animals, would we? But would we make a home or a stone or silver and gold like it says here? Would we make that an idol? And then it says, which were among them? right? Lest, verse 18, there should be among you man or woman or family. <laughs> Sometimes family becomes the idol. A man or a woman and family can do, be just the same, just the same, or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God. Can we do that in a second? To go and serve the gods of this nation, of other nations. Live just like the world. Lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood, Very interesting, wormwood, gall here, and wormwood, look at what it says here, it's a poisonous herb. Isn't that interesting? It's a poisonous herb. You know what that means? When we feed on anything other than Christ, God's full thought, when we do that, Ephesians 5 and verse 16 says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Evil there is the Greek word poneros, P-O-N. E-R-O-S, it's paneros, and it's infectious, poisonous evil in active opposition to God's divine good in me, who Christ is in me and who I am in him. Poisonous herb, a poisonous herb, that's what it says, right? And verse 19, and it it comes... It come to pass when he hears the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart saying, I will have peace even though I'm in the flesh, even though all these other things are replacing Christ. You wonder why we don't have peace? Because who is that peace in Ephesians 2 verse 14? Can wood, silver, gold, stone bring us peace? Going here, going there, doing this, going there. Does going on vacation give me peace if I don't have it even before I go? Read Job, the 28th chapter. Even the sea says, what you're looking for in me, the peace that you're not experiencing, you're not going to find in me. You won't find it in me. And so here it says again, as we close this out, and it will come to pass that when he hears the words of this curse, and, and curse, because where are all the curses come from? Where does all the doubt come from? God's thought, our own reasonings, and our own thoughts. Right? Come to pass that he that hears the words of this curse, and he bless himself. Now, I don't care anyway. I'm still going to do it. He bless himself in his own mind and his own emotions, saying, I will have peace. Though I walk, and look what it says, in the imagination. This is 2 Corinthians 10, 4, 5. Six, the imagination of my own mind and emotions and to drunkenness to thirst. Right? And, and the imagination here. Do you know what the word imagination here means? Stubbornness. Stubbornness. Thinking that I can be in the flesh and still sacrifice to God. 1 Samuel 15:22. God is not interested in sacrifice. No, he's interested in obedience. Obedience, right? For rebellion, resisting God, rebellion, and that's in the flesh, not who we are in Christ, but rebellion is this what? Witchcraft. You wouldn't get involved with witchcraft anymore now that you're born again, would you? Rebellion is this witchcraft. Same thing. Same spirit. And stubbornness as idolatry. It's an idol. Stubbornness constantly resisting, like the religious crowd of the day, gnashing their teeth on the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts the 7th chapter, when he told them, you stubborn, you proud and stubborn people, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, they were resisting the Holy Spirit. Did they resist Christ, the religious crowd? Did they give him over to the Roman government to have him crucified? Did they resist all the prophets? Way back? Yes. Do we resist? Where? In the flesh. But you know what? We have sufficiency. And I'll close with this. We have sufficiency. And we can see this. Now, in 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 16, it says, Who is sufficient for all these things? I mean, does anything make any sense outside the sense of His grace where He's loving us? Does anything make any sense when we're not loved? Does anything make any sense? It makes no sense. But he's sufficient to us. Hikainos. That's what it says. It's H-I-K-A, uh, let's see, N-O-S, Hikainos. Literally, that's what it means, sufficient. And sufficient means to be competent. It means to be, we get grace coming right in, in the proper season, timing, and provision. Which is why we always teach with, by the pure grace of God, as he's taught us, God's timing is as important as his provision. Because if he gave us a provision when our capacity wasn't ready for it, it would be a curse. We would just use it for the flesh. We would consume it upon the flesh. So it has to do with that. And it means ample or fit and proper character. And as an adjective, it simply means sufficient power. And who's our power source? Who's our power source? In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24, it's Christ. He's competent. And is he not worthy for us to trust him and think with him? In Revelations 5, 9 and 12. But remember, again, our sufficiency, is it of the flesh? No, our sufficiency, our supernatural ability is of God. It's of Christ in us. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 5. With this word, Hekanos. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, in verse nine, and this is also brought out in John chapter six and verse seven. It's the, it's archeo, A-R-K-E-O. And this is what it is. It's a primary and very important verb. See, if God's love is is going to be active, what must it flow through to get to me? It has to flow through grace, because I do not, no one deserves it. No unfallen angel ever deserved to be created. None of us deserve anything because God is the cause. And so it, it, it flowed from his love. So it's a primary verb. And here's the idea of archaeo in 2 Corinthians twelve nine 9, in John 6, verse 7. It's the idea of raising a barrier. And what is that barrier? When God threw through preaching and teaching the word in Hebrews 4.12. He separates the soul, self-conscious living in the flesh, from the spirit. He sets up a barrier. Ah. And now when I'm on this side, functioning in Christ, he sets up a barrier and now I experience in his love, I have joy and I have peace. And my joy may be up and down, but I have settled peace with God because Christ is my peace. In Ephesians 2 and verse 14. And then when that barrier, the truth of the proper image in Christ through who Christ is in me and who I am in him, it raises a barrier between and it wards off all that other stuff coming in to affect us. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against blood and flesh. We don't. But against principalities and powers the rulers of the darkness of this particular age, against spiritual wickedness in the heights. And it's coming against us with reasonings. But we see he sets up a barrier. That barrier is the word that Christ is, that, that is ours positionally, but I submit it becomes an experiential reality and a true barrier to ward off and to avail and to be sufficient, to be possessed of power, to, be, to have sufficient strength, to be strong, to be enough for any circumstance or situation that I'm in, to be enough, and to defend, to ward off, and then in the middle voice, and what is the middle voice? Anybody remember? Grace is always in the passive voice, isn't it? When I'm humbled and I have that grace, that grace gives me the ability to submit and then function in that grace through a choice of my will, and that's the middle voice. I begin to start participating experientially about about who Christ is in me, and he's pure strength, and he sends us volumes of continual strength through his grace, and it's the strength of his love, our only authority, again, and that's brought out in Psalm 68 and verse 28. So let's not be senseless. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a very well-disciplined mind because we have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, and we are to allow that mind through a submission of our will to be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's given us this very mind. It's a very victorious mind. We need to submit. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for this time in the Word. Thank you, Father. Bless our day. Keep us in your thoughts which is the satisfaction of who Christ is, Father, in glorifying you, and then us receiving that experientially and being so blessed. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.